you have your Bible with you this morning, I would ask you to open it up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we'll begin reading at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him into the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. The church, as it begins, has faced both troubles within and troubles without. We saw last time trouble within. And we saw the wisdom of which this, with which this potential powder keg was handled by the apostles. And in the solution, there was to be seven men who were approved by the congregation itself to handle the business of the distribution to the widows. It is here where we met the man Stephen, described for us in chapter 6 and verse 5 as a, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now that's not to say the other six were not. Far from it. But that he was particularly gifted and this would show itself clearly in this chapter and the next. As we begin, we also observe the increasing hostility. The level was increasing as far as the hostility in the Jewish leadership because they went from first arresting Peter and John and then letting them go with a warning. Then the next time they arrest them, and they beat the apostles. Now, as we will see, we will continue into chapter 7 later on. Now they'll end up killing. So the hostility level is going higher and higher. And it will rise to the level of killing by stoning. As we look at our passage today, we see... Uh, three aspects of it. First, there's the man of God. Secondly, then there's the men against God. And then thirdly, we see the man with God. 
So first then, the man of God. Verse 8 begins with the description. It says of Stephen that he was full of faith and power. Now in some versions, you can read that it says he was full of grace and power. And I think that's a fine translation as well. The grace of God gave him the great power to do the things that he was doing. And he did wonders and signs among the people. And the verb tense in the Greek gives us the idea that we could translate it this way. He kept doing great wonders and signs. A.T. Robertson says, He was a sudden whirlwind of power in the very realm of Peter and John and the rest. Stephen was a Jew. He was a Greek-speaking Jew, referred to, as we saw last week, as a Hellenist. And it would make sense that he would be speaking Greek as he proclaimed the Word of God and did the wonders and the signs. Now, what are signs? It's good to remember that signs, we can call them attesting miracles. What it is, is the signs were used to authenticate, to prove that these people were sent by God. And so therefore the signs that Stephen uh, was taking part in, it was showing, these were showing that he was authenticated by God, being sent by God. And these things happened as he spoke the gospel of Christ. And so as he spoke these things in his Greek language, that caught the attention of those of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, as we read about that, if you notice here in verse 9, there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. It would make sense that they would be disputing because they would be the Greek-speaking Jews from around outside the area, the, the area of Judea and, and, and outward. So we could have as many as five synagogues being represented here, working in common association. The word freedmen meant that they were probably at one time slaves of Rome who were ultimately released to freedom in Jerusalem. Now, all this is important to see, but one place we want to make particular note of, it says Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia. Now, what's important about that is that in that area of Cilicia is Tarsus. And from Tarsus would be Saul of Tarsus, who would eventually be the Apostle Paul. So in that group from Cilicia would be the Apostle Paul, not yet the Apostle, but Saul of Tarsus. And we will see him appear in chapter 7. And I think we see him appearing here as well. So we meet him in this particular time and place. And there'll be further reference to him in chapter 7. Now, before I continue on, I'll say just a few more words about Stephen because we read that he was a man full of grace and power. And again, the others were also men full of faith and grace and wisdom. 
but he excelled them in certain areas. And when it comes to the gifts and the graces of the Holy Spirit, all believers have a measure. That is, all believers are to some degree, they have a gift from the Holy Spirit. Maybe more than one. And this does not make someone inferior to another. There may be someone you look at and say, well, they seem to be really gifted, but I'm not very much gifted. This is not what the gifts of the Spirit were ever set up to do, to set up some kind of hierarchy, to set up some kind of super saint status, and here I'm just a lowly one, and, and here's this great one up here. It's never designed to do that. The abuse of it has caused that kind of thing. But it doesn't make one inferior to another. It shows us, instead, the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit. If you turn for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's been some crazy teachings about spiritual gifts over the years. You want a spiritual gift? Ask God for that spiritual gift. That's not actually the way it works. It's not like there's a bag of... It's not like Santa's bag. Let me reach down and get this one for you, little boy. That's that's not how it works. In 1 Corinthians 12, let's go to verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. This is Paul being somewhat humorous. So you've got to pick up his humor here because he's getting into the absurd to make a point. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole hearing were, if the whole were hearing, then where would be the smelling? Now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So you have that picture. They were placed as God has pleased them, each and everyone individually. Now, from that, we should never envy the gifts of another believer. We should never look upon them with great envy. Instead, we should look and see what God has gifted to us and rejoice in the fact that he has done that. It says that the same spirit in verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things Distributing to each one individually as he wills. 
And someone might say, well, I don't have this gift. And someone else will say, well, pray for it. You might receive. That's not how it works. The Spirit gives the gifts to people individually as He wills. Your job is not to look elsewhere, but to find out what it is that He has given to us and exercise it. You don't walk on your hands. And you don't play the piano with your feet. Everything has its place and its purpose. And if you lost your hand, you would miss it. And you would see that it's really important. If you lost your foot, you would see that it's really important to have had that foot. And yet, more times than not, as Paul would say, some of those parts we, we cover up. But we still need them. So we should not envy another's gift or gifts. Rejoice that God has so ordained for each and every one of us to be gifted by the Spirit. What he has purposefully given to us. So Stephen is the man of God and beginning at verse 9 of chapter 6 of the book of Acts. We see then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now these that we have listed. We are introduced then secondly now as we've looked at the man of God we look at the men against God. Here they have joined together and they are disputing with Stephen. They are arguing, trying to destroy his statements, opposing him. And I'm sure they felt quite cocky going into this because here they are, the leaders of five different synagogues going against this one untrained man. Oh, we shall have him and it will be easy and it will be fun. But it wasn't. As we see in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. They were not able to resist, as in some translations we have, to withstand. I like that word because they couldn't stand with him. Even though they tried to and tried to get ahead of him, they couldn't do it. He, they kept falling behind him. And how? The wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They could not resist. And the verb tense again tells us that it continued that way. No matter what they tried to bring up, he was able to counter it and counter it soundly. It's like being in a batting cage and you've got the batting machine and it's it's putting the ball perfectly in place each and every time as it comes flying out of there. And whack, whack, whack. Every single time, it's a solid hit. And he destroys everything that they bring up against him. He knocked down their objections. It continually did that. Everything that they brought up. The wisdom that God, the Spirit of God, had given to him. Now, also, we want to notice something else. 
There's a big difference between to dispute and to refute. People can argue. That's disputation. That's arguing. But the only way that you refute is when you actually come up with something better than the argument that was put forth. So there's that difference. And they're disputing with him, but they can't refute him because he has wisdom of God on his side. Now, if we look back at chapter 5 and verse 39, remember the words of Gamaliel. He says, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. And so they're trying to overthrow Stephen. They're being uh, routed every time they come up with something. Because why? It's of God. And they're now finding themselves fighting against God. The wise words were given. If it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against it. They're now, those representatives of the synagogue are fighting against God. But second, and what Stephen is doing here and in chapter 7 is another clear fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 10 in verses 19 and 20 that if you have to appear uh, before these councils, when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. This is, this is being brought out to us. In Luke 21 and verse 15, he says again, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict. What a beautiful fulfillment of what Jesus promised here. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. It was said. Say here, they couldn't resist the wisdom and power of Stephen. So it's clearly on display here and will be. And we also see that Jesus called those who came against, if you notice there, in Luke 21, 15, the ones who came against them would be referred to as adversaries, Satan's. That's, that's what Satan's name is, where it gets it, your adversary, the devil. Their adversaries are enemies. And so here they have put themselves in the place of enemies. And they were not able to contradict or, or resist. This can well mean that even Saul of Tarsus, who even in his self-disclosure of himself in Philippians 3, he was a rising star in the realm of Judaism. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was riding high. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was well-respected and looked at. <clears throat> it's very possible that he was one of those who was disputing with Stephen. And Stephen was having it easy with him. Now there's two ways you can respond to that. You can look and say, wow, I must, I must think about what he's saying. Or you can get all angry. They chose the latter. And I think in, in later times you can find 
the sadness of the Apostle Paul when he thought about some of these adventures and things that he did. So notice what they do then. In verse 11, well, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They secretly induced men to say, they suborned them, means to put them under. And how did they put them under? Well, we'll give you a bribe. Or, you know this bill that you owe me? If you will say these words, I'll write your bill off. They had the power to put them under to serve them to their evil ways. And what did they want these men to say? Say that we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now let's stop right there. Let's look at the word blasphemy. Blasphemy, as it is properly understood, are words that are inaccurate, lying or untrue about a deity. You can't blaspheme me. You can't blaspheme Andrew. You can only blaspheme. Remember, uh, John makes a point of showing where Jesus says, blasphemy against the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's God. You can blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He says you can blaspheme against Him. Jesus, why? He's God. And of course, in the Old Testament, the strong wording that you see in Leviticus and other places, against blasphemy against God. But notice what they say here. It's blasphemous words against who? Moses and God. Where have they elevated Moses to? <clears throat> We've heard him say blasphemous words against Moses, against God. I think it's important because <clears throat> we see what they had said. Moses and God putting Moses before God even in the mix and saying that he was blaspheming Moses. And it's the same as putting him on the same level as Moses, or as God. Now, as we can think about this for just a moment, we have, uh, and this is, I don't want to get into politics, but I want, here's a prime example. We have a president who said to the prince of Saudi Arabia, when the prince of Saudi Arabia said, we're not going to increase our oil production. Like we may cut it back. Who said, don't say anything about it till after November. What, what kind of impression did that leave upon the prince of Saudi Arabia? 
So when you have the Jewish leadership telling these men to lie about someone, what kind of impression are these religious leaders giving to those people that they're telling to lie? Now they might say, well, you know, the ends, the, the, the means uh, and the ends are important here. Whatever means we use to come to the de desired end, that, that's, that's all that matters. This kind of pragmatic idea. But no, lying is never part of a proper means to do anything. And so we have this, this very, very ugly situation that is taking place. Now again, blasphemy could only be against deity. And in John chapter 5, as Jesus is upbraiding them a little bit in, in verses 45 through 47, Jesus makes an indictment against them with these words. He says, Moses, in whom you trust. Moses, in whom you trust. <clears throat> so let's look at this situation. The ones who were screaming blasphemy were actually the ones committing blasphemy. So in verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, that is Stephen, and seized him, took him by force, and brought him to the council. So upon the speaking of lies, Stephen is seized by force, brought him into the council, Note what else they did. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. This was a favorite tactic. I don't know if you're like me in what you're seeing on television around us these days as far as these, quote, commercials, adverts, advertisements for these political candidates. If this is the quality of what we have, I don't want to vote for any of them. Because both sides are full of exaggerations and untruths. And I say, well, that's not my campaign that did it. Well, if it's not your campaign that did it, but it's still a lie, you should come out and say, that, that's not right. Why not come out and say what you're going to do rather than have all this nonsense going around? Well, he did that and she did that. Well, she did that. Stop it. It's not doing any good. In fact, it's eroding any kind of confidence, at least, that I could have on any of them. But it's a favorite tactic, tactic that they use. Let's stir up the people. Let's get them into a frenzy. Let's move them beyond thinking to full emotion that they get all angry. And it's like a great mob that's coming to attack. That's I can show you five other times in the book of Acts where the Jews' leadership did the same thing. They stirred up the people and each and every time it was because they didn't have an answer to what was being said. So let's silence them by force. So we come to verse 13 and 14 and we notice what did they do? They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. They've gone from Moses and God now to a building 
and a scroll. The temple. He said words against the temple. And the law, the ceremonial law, and their customs. Which again they say in verse 14 that Moses delivered to us. And we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Moses better than Jesus. The destruction of the temple was prophesied by Jeremiah, by Daniel, by Micah, and others. But they were never seen as being blasphemous. But now that it's being brought forth again, now now it's blasphemy. Jesus in in Luke 21 verse 6 said the temple days would come to an end. And in John chapter 4, when he spoke to the, uh, the woman at the well, he said, the time is coming. We're not going to worry about the place. For God is seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. And those who worship him in spirit and truth, that's what he's looking for. The place won't matter. And Jesus said, to the servant that his servant is not above the master and Stephen is receiving the same treatment that they gave Jesus now quickly we note the third the man with God in verse 15 it's a beautiful picture it's a very ironic picture as well all who sat at the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as a face and they now they're staring they're staring at Stephen they're looking for something they're looking for a trembling of a lip they're looking for any signs of fear that they can jump on they're any, looking for any signs of confusion any signs of weakness but what did they see instead the face of an angel the face of an angel calmness serenity innocence an unconsciousness of guilt. And ironically, they're seeing something similar to the transformation, transfiguration, transfiguration of Jesus. But also, the most ironic thing about it is they're seeing something akin to Moses' face when he came down from the mountain. This is, this is a great divine irony that's taking place. The ones who were talking about blasphemy against Moses are now seeing a man looking really close to what Moses looked like when Moses came down from the mountain. It's only said of him. This is the only time that we find in the New Testament that his face was the face of an angel. Why? Why was it so? Well, when we get to chapter 7 and verse 55, but he being Stephen, being Stephen again, but he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's why he had this face. Because he had this beatific vision. 
He could see the face of his Savior. In the midst of it all, he knew he was not by himself, that God was with him. And very quickly, let's see a couple of important things here. First, that wisdom, that is true wisdom, comes from the Lord. Wisdom is personified in Christ in Proverbs 8. God has endowed mankind with a mind. Without it, we could not receive the truth. God's word is truth. The gospel is the high point of wisdom. And the proof that, Jesus, that, that Peter or Stephen spoke the truth is found in first. They induced men to lie about him. Lie about what he said. And then, secondly, they tried to circumvent the truth by stirring up hyper-emotions in the crowd. Friends, you might sometimes think that I'm against emotions. No, no, no. I'm all for emotions. But I want emotions that have been founded upon truth. That the mind has been so affected by the truth that it comes out in emotion. What is it that we read in the Psalms this morning? Psalm 27. That I may behold the beauty of the Lord. That's, a, that's an emotional thing, yes. Why? Because intellectually, in the mind, it, the truth has formed a picture of God that is of great beauty. Proverbs 15 and verse 18 says, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. The great gift of the mind in so many cases is allowed to go fallow, become a field that's untouched, and going through Sunday school in the morning in Hosea. In six, Hosea 6 and verses 1 through 3, he says, let us seek wisdom. Let us seek knowledge. Then we can seek the Lord. If we're, doing, if we're seeking wisdom and knowledge, guess what we're doing? We're seeking the Lord. So let us do that. And then in, coming up in chapter 10, you'll read, sow for yourselves righteousness. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord. Again, it's the same thing as he's saying in chapter 6. The fallow ground of your mind, break it up. Get it ready to plant the seed of truth. Use the wisdom in mind that God has given us. The second thing that would go with here, Stephen's opponents had a religion. But it was a religion based on externals. And on superstition. They held on dearly to the holy place in the temple. Something that Jeremiah had years and years, thousands of years ahead of time told them. You keep saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And it's going to be destroyed. It is not your hope. It is the greater than the temple that is your hope. The temple and the law, they placed great hope and almost a deity upon these things. It's all superstition. 
If you're relying and believing on anything beside the Lord Jesus Christ, you're into superstition and idolatry. And to put Moses on the same level as God. And yet John would tell us in John chapter 1 and verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we bring it home then. And one simple question for every single one of us. What are you trusting? What are you trusting? What would you say before God? As you stood before Him, what if you had to appear in the judgment seat? What would you say before Him? If you say anything but... I believe I am saved by faith alone, by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, by the Word of God alone. If you say anything else, you fall into a religion of externals, and you're as lost as these men who were disputing with Stephen. Stephen will spend the whole next chapter, we'll see, bringing them to that point that you see everything was pointing to Jesus Christ. But oh no, they wanted to hold on to their temple and their structures and their law and their customs. And I'm afraid that many died that way. Don't let it happen to you. Make Jesus Christ your only trust. Let's stand together for prayer.